0: This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God and worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and please open it to the book of Galatians chapter one. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles located in the back of the chairs near where you are seated. Please feel free to not only use that, but if you don't own a Bible and would like to take that one, please feel free to take it as a gift from Trinity for you to have and to read. I believe we are three or four weeks in now to our study of Galatians, and we come to one verse this morning, verse 10, a verse that has great application to us today. This verse in many ways is a parenthesis, and we need to recognize it as such Paul began in verse 6 through 9 laying out the issue at hand. The issue was that the church at Galatia was starting to believe another gospel. It wasn't as much that they were denying the death and resurrection of Jesus as that they wanted to be sure that the Jewish faith was still adhered to through following the Torah, through the dietary laws, and through circumcision. So they're saying that if you are a follower of Christ, these are things that still must be in place. It was more the gospel plus these things. And Paul speaks out adamantly to say that's not the case at all. Salvation is by grace alone. Now he's laid out the beginning of his arguments in verse 6 through 9. And he'll resume that in verse 11. But verse 10, as I said, is a parenthesis where Paul begins to address an accusation that was leveled against him. Paul, in preaching this gospel of grace, you're just trying to please people. You're trying to make things easier for people to be a part of God's people, so you're watering down the truth. You're tickling ears, Paul. So that's why Paul wrote this. After he had just said in verse 9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. A long time before America's Funniest Home Videos was ever an idea in any producer's head, there was a show that captured the surprise of reality TV. A show that many of us remember as being narrated and directed by Alan Funt, Candid Camera. The premise was very simple. The camera would be hidden to catch people in awkward situations and record their reactions. And it was genius and hilarious. But even beyond the things that were seen on film, it gave us insight into how we think as people. One such episode that demonstrated the psychology of who we are was entitled Face the Rear. Very simple premise. Camera was set up in an elevator. Elevator doors open and a man steps in. You know what you do when you get in the elevator? You step in the elevator, then you turn around and you face the doors. The elevator goes up a floor. Doors open. Two more people step in. But they don't turn around. So you have the first rider that's facing the doors. The next two riders are still facing the back. You can see a little bit of discomfort in the original rider's face. Goes up two more floors. The door is open. Now a third person steps in. They step in. They don't turn around to the front doors. They continue facing the rear. And every time. The same thing happened. The original rider would eventually turn around and face the rear also. Every time. We all live with that pressure in some way. That pressure to conform. We're all influenced in some way. I mean, consider what we wear. We wear what is considered in style. It happens. As I look out today, I do not see many velvet-colored, or I should say, burgundy-colored leisure suits among the men. No, we're good. We are influenced by what is around us. That's part of the reality of who we are. We are social people. But the danger comes when that is taken to extreme. And we begin to live our lives seeking the approval of others. Whenever the fear of being rejected or being in some way marked by disapproval causes us to change our actions, we have come into a level of danger. Or when we live with guilt, guilt that we don't measure up to the expectations of those around us. As I made mention a moment ago, pleasing people was the accusation made against Paul. Verse 10, as I said, is that parentheses where Paul begins to address those who are saying, Paul, you're just trying to gain a hearing. You're just trying to to preach what will gain you approval. You can see as you do a survey of the New Testament, this accusation would seem to have some credibility with Paul. Because Paul would adapt his strategy of preaching the gospel based upon those whom he was preaching. For example, when you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says this, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul is admitting... I adapt, I change my strategy based upon those to whom I'm preaching. I want to gain a hearing. Now, as I said earlier, the issue with the church in Galatia was the markers of the faith. What characterizes people who are saved? The church at Galatia was saying it's Jesus Christ. Plus the markers of following the Torah, of dietary laws, of circumcision. And Paul speaks out adamantly. For example, in Galatians chapter 5 verse 2, Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I mean, that is in no uncertain terms. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Now, keep that in mind. And read what occurs in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his, that is Timothy's father, was a Greek. Huh. On one hand, if if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, you, you don't need Christ. But then on the other hand, he admonishes, in fact, instructs Timothy to be circumcised. What gives? Furthermore, listen to this in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up for Christ did not please himself but it is as it is written the reproaches of those who approached you fell on me this is curious isn't it i'm not a man pleaser But at the same time, let us seek how we can please our neighbors for their good. Don't be circumcised, but at the same time, I'll have Timothy circumcised. And I think we see two principles begin to emerge out of this that can help us navigate this. Two conclusions. First is this. Be willing to adapt for the sake of the mission, but not when it comes to salvation and morals. For Paul, it wasn't the issue really of circumcision. He would say, "Hey, you want to be circumcised? Fine. But do not make it a criteria for being saved. In other words, if you say you've got to do this to be saved, I will not agree with that whatsoever. But if I need to do that to gain a hearing and we're not lifting up to the level of necessity for salvation, I don't have a problem with that. So we need to have a flexibility when it comes to how to meet people, how to, to address them with the gospel, to understand those to whom we are speaking. For example, if I were to go out and be called to minister in Hawaii, still waiting for that call, and I were to say, I'm going to have a beach ministry, it probably wouldn't be wise for me to put on my suit and tie and to go out on the beach there, Oahu, to try to win people to the gospel. But it would be very appropriate to wear flip-flops, a swimsuit, and a Panama Jack hat. Ah. It's learning how to meet people where they are. So be willing to adapt for the sake of the mission, but not when it comes to the message of the gospel and morals. Also, we cannot go to the extreme of saying that we don't care what other people think. Sometimes I often hear that even among believers. Well, I don't care what people think. That's equally as dangerous. In fact, there's a word for that. Sociopath. In fact, what I read earlier in Romans chapter 15, Paul says we cannot go to that extreme. We can't get to the point where we say, well, I don't care what other people think. I'm doing whatever. So the challenge is how to walk between these two conclusions. We cannot let the driving force in our lives be what others may think of us. The Bible calls that the fear of man. In fact, there's a strong warning in Proverbs twenty-nine, twenty-five: The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Fear doesn't just mean being afraid of. It means being in awe and in reverence of. In fact, we're told to fear the Lord, to be in awe and reverence of the Lord. If we live in fear of man, it means that we are craving the approval or fearing the disapproval of others, which is actually a form of worship. Living to please other people is a form of idolatry. And idolatry is always, always, always destructive. And dangerous. Living for the approval of others is dangerous because, first of all, it will cause us to lose sight of pleasing God. If we are focused on pleasing others in a dangerous sense of gaining their approval in everything, we will find that pleasing God will fade into the background. Jesus said something very appropriate to this, although it was in a different context. When Jesus was warning about the dangers of greed, he said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? I think that's very applicable to this issue. What does it gain us to hear the applause of the whole world but lose our very souls? We need to keep in mind there is one to whom we have to please. In his book entitled, What God Thinks When We Fail, Stephen Roy tells a fictional story of a young man who is a very gifted violinist. This man had promised to be a, a violinist extraordinaire, but he had one issue to overcome. He was very much an introvert and did not like playing in front of crowds. But eventually, he was encouraged and cajoled to give a concert in a huge concert hall. And it was standing room only. The young man walked out to the middle of the stage, just him and his violin, no orchestra, no music, and for an hour and a half, he began to play. In fact, he was so good that after 10 minutes, all the critics who filled the front rows just put their pens and and pads down just to listen and to enjoy the talent. After an hour and a half of playing, finally, the young man stopped and he stood. And of course, he received a standing ovation. But you could tell by looking at his face, he really was not hearing the applause. He was scanning the crowds in the, on the floor and up in the balcony. You could tell he was looking. And then finally, he came to one spot in the balcony and his eyes widened. And then a smile came to his face. And then finally, he acknowledged the applause of the crowd by a bow. In a press conference afterward, the question was asked, what were you looking for at the end of the concert? He said, I was told just before I went on that my teacher was going to be present in the audience. I couldn't look around while I was playing. But after I finished, I wanted to find him. I wanted to see how he was responding. When I looked and I saw that my teacher was smiling, standing, and applauding, I knew it was good. Everyone else was appreciated, but in the end, it was the one that mattered. If we lose sight of pleasing God, we will indeed become moral chameleons who simply blend in to the world around us. And in doing so, we will end up denying our Lord. Remember that the world we begin seeking to please will one day fade away. But we will be with the Lord forever. So we must keep it first and foremost in our minds to please Him. The second reason we must be aware of this danger is because if we live in constant uh, desire for the approval of others, it will cause us to live in fear. Now, no one likes to feel rejected. No one likes to feel like they don't measure up. And living for the approval of others will simply magnify this fear. And we live in a day and age where social media has intensified that fear. A while back, the Wall Street Journal did a series of articles on Facebook, now known as Meta. Their series of articles was known as the Facebook Files. What the reporters detailed in their investigation of Facebook was that Facebook executives were very aware of the ways their platform would cause harm. It revealed that they had a different set of rules for people. It also recognized that Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, as well as Facebook itself, has negative effects on the self-image and mental health of teenagers, particularly teenage girls. The world of social media heightens the dynamics where everyone is followed, where everyone is examined, where everyone is seeking the approval and fearing the disapproval of our peers. A philosopher by the name of Alain de Botton says, and I quote, the subconscious argument goes that if I'm famous or well-known, I'll be free from facing any rejection or judgment. I'll have an instant and safe community. However, de Botton goes on to say, fame makes people more, not less vulnerable because it throws them open to un." Limited, unlimited judgment. While there are certainly pros and cons to social media, we must be aware that it heightens heightens the fear of being rejected and disapproved, and can eradicate joy. That's where we must always come back that the counter thing to, to fear is joy and trust. To know that we have the approval of the Lord and knowing his love within community. We must be aware that living for others will cause us to live in constant fear. And it will also do this. It will create pressure to live up to unrealistic expectations. The rise of social media has created and brought about a condition known as mom guilt. This is a real thing. The Cleveland Clinic defines mom guilt as feelings of guilt and shame when mothers feel they don't live up to their own or others' expectations in their role as a parent. It's like an internal dialogue that tells you you are failing as a parent. This often originates as we see what others are doing and we feel like we have to be doing the same thing. And it creates this world of comparing ourselves with others and the desire to be accepted and to recognize and be validated by the culture around us by saying, you are a good parent. But the reality is, we are different people in different places with different abilities and different resources. All we need to recognize is that we do our best With what God has given us. We can't live up to the standards. And by the way, most of the things that we see online, they're not real anyway. We have to keep that in mind. We have to keep coming back to this question as parents. What does my child really need? I couldn't have put it any better than Marjorie did when she said, listening to your child. They need to know love. A love that will correct and discipline, a love that will accept, a love that will comfort as well as admonish. We need to be reminded that we can only do what we can do. Several years ago, when I was getting ready to make the transition back into the pulpit as Emma was becoming more and more stable, I met with two men from the congregation, men whom I have a great deal of respect for. And I shared with them my fears. That in trying to balance the demands of ministry with the needs of my daughter, some things we going to have to give. I would not be able to do what I once did in my ministry at the church. And both of these men agreed and said something I've never forgotten. Mark, you can only do what you can do. Moms, dads. You can only do what you can do. Don't fall into the trap of comparing yourselves to others and feeling like if I don't have my child in tap, piano, trumpet, basketball, guitar, yoga, as well as engaged in all the upper scholastic events, that I'm somehow failing as a parent. You're not. Love them. So how do we overcome this temptation? I've laid out the dangers. Now, how, how do we overcome people pleasing? First, I would say this. Be involved in the community of Christ. Now, I say that I know. I know the churches are not perfect. Churches are made up of those who are forgiven but are trying to follow Christ. But my point is this. This is where, as a church, we need to practice the love one another's. To be a part of a community that knows love and, and gives love unconditionally doesn't mean there aren't times where we don't encourage or admonish one another or where we don't say, hey, I'm concerned about this. But within all of it, there is this idea of love. Not just this idea, but the actions of love that permeate it. That say, you be you. You be a follower of Christ, the best you can be, and we will love one another and encourage one another. And yes, I know we fall short of that, but we don't stop striving. You know, it's a dated show. And I say that as I, I use this illustration. One of the great theme songs of television came out in the 1980s with the song Cheers. I know it's about a bar. But the opening words of that, wouldn't you like to go where everybody knows your name? And they're always glad you came. And I thought, absolutely. So we need to practice that. To be involved in the community of Christ, loving one another. Second is this, we must keep focused on the one whom we must please. These two go together. The community of faith, of love, reminds us that we must keep focused on the Lord. The applause of the world will fade, and it's fickle, by the way. One moment they'll be applauding you, the next moment they'll be asking you to never open your mouth again. So let's focus on the one with whom we will give an account. Oz Guinness is a theologian and apologist as well as a prolific author. He grew up in China. His parents were there post-World War II when China was going through a tremendous period of upheaval. They lived in Nanjing, which at that time was the capital of China. And because conditions there were very challenging, at the age of five, he was sent to a boarding school. It was the best that his parents could do and offer for him. But he said as he was leaving, his dad and his mom gave him a very odd but extremely precious gift. It was two stones, two small stones. And they had written on each of the stones their motto. The father had taken one stone and upon it he had written, found faithful. His mother had written on the stone she gave to Oz, please him, with a capital H. He said, As a little boy, I carried one in my left pocket and one in my right, found faithful, please him. He said, As China went through chaos and eventually he and his parents fled the country in Mao Zedong and the people's army overran Nanjing, he said, I lost those stones. But I have never lost their meaning and their message. Found faithful and please Him. Let that be the guiding words of our lives also. Bow with me, if you will, in prayer. Father, help us to live for You. Father, most of us struggle in this area. We feel the pressure from the culture around us to conform. So help us, Lord, to live for you, to be found faithful, and to please you. I thank you that you don't leave us on our own to do this, but you give us grace. So, Lord, let your grace flow through us that we will encourage others. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.